Driving 120s, heading into the hills with the wildfire smoke running over my gills. I could drive with my eyes closed, the moon's so bright. The city blocks turn to rivers and trees, and I'm washing the dirt of the wig off of me, and I'm looking to. You are listening to KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at KZYX.org, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. This show was pre-recorded, but at the time that I recorded it, which was just a few hours before you're listening to it, we still had not made the pledge drive goal, unfortunately. But thank you all for donating. Those who did, it was $75,000 this morning and still trying to get $25,000 more. So if you do feel inspired, and I hope you feel inspired, go to kzyx.org and hit the red Donate Now button so you can help support programming like this, other public affairs, and music programs that keep us all moving all through the day. Thank you. Welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. I'm Chad Swimmer, and we have a great show coming up for you tonight. We're going to start off with updates on what's happening in Jackson State, and there is a lot happening right now. And then my friend Paul Schulman, co-host, is going to interview me for a short couple minutes about what we are actually doing and what this place called Jackson is, since a number of you might not know and might not have heard our previous shows. We will have a second grade science report about ravens in the redwoods, my favorite bird, but not everybody's, as you might hear. We will be talking to youth climate activists Sarah Constance Rose and Ravel Gautier again. We will also have a short conversation with Michelle Alder and Mugwort, who will give us some first-hand accounts of direct action in the Soda Gulch Timber Harvest Plan. And I know that's a lot to fit into one hour, but we're still going to listen to a little bit more of this song by the Brothers Comatose, 120 East. Well, pines and redwoods reach to the sky And the line the winding roads we drive They wave to us in winds, they wave us on Welcome's felt when we play the bar But it feels like we just stepped out of the car And the bell starts tolling time to get us gone And then I want to go back to something that Coyote Valley Pomo tribal elder Priscilla Hunter said Reminding us that this forest is our family and we need to protect our family because these trees are our family. These trees are our grandmothers. These trees are our lungs. And because it's all a family affair, I want to tell you about a new tree set that's going on that was pioneered in the Gemini tree right near the Casper kiosk, a very large redwood, probably a baby grandma. And the first two tree sitters in this tree were a 15-year-old and her mother. It's a family affair. Hope you can go out there and say hi to them. They will be there for a couple days and somebody else might have to climb up because everybody needs to work these days. We can't spend as much time out there as Julia Butterfly did. Other news, great news. We have heard that State Assembly Member Jim Wood and State Senator Mike McGuire are actually finally pushing for a moratorium that we have been asking for for nearly a year now. Right now, it's just staff-level meetings. Their staff and CAL FIRE staff are going to meet this coming week 
to discuss what can be done because Cal Fire is feeling some black eyes that it's been getting recently. We had a Public Records Act request submitted and it came out that Cal Fire spent over $500,000 to guard two and a half miles of empty road while nothing was going on. They hired private security and you could just basically walk on a trail around the private security and continue on up the road and mostly these pretty friendly young people would wave at us as they took down our license plates numbers, things like that that seemed rather secret police-ish. Meanwhile, at the same time, at protests, Cal Fire Foresters were taking pictures of us and taking pictures of our license plates, which seemed kind of fascist, if you ask me. Unfortunately, this was not enough, as in one of the timber harvest plans in Jackson, the Soda Gulch plan, which we talked about last month, there was a mercenary private security firm in action. And apparently this was hired by MRC, who purchased the plan from Cal Fire. This person and his friends were seen down in Enchanted Meadow a while back, and in that case they were packing pistols publicly, not carry concealed, but right there on their jacket. This firm is Lear Assets Management, which was present up at the Rainbow Ridge tree sit a while back in Humboldt County and was known before they had a name for doing pretty kind of militaristic pot garden raids out in the Laytonville area. These are the people who are out there under the guise of being safety officers, and you'll hear more from Michael Hunter about that. That's Lear Assets Management. Check them out online. Anyway, let's get to a little bit of background on the whole trail stewards thing. Hi, everybody. This is Paul Schulman. I'm here with Chad Swimmer, the communications director of the Mendocino Trail Stewards. Hey, wait a minute. I thought I was the president. No, I, I just saw an email that you sent. It looked like you were demoted. Oh, no. <laughs> Figures. I wanted to talk to him about about how this all started, the, the Mendocino Trail Stewards and, you know, the effort to conserve Jackson Demonstration State Forest. It is a mouthful. Yeah. Well, I know you didn't ask me to tell you about my childhood, but... <laughs> How far I, back do we go? I, I'm going to go way back okay. because the funny thing is, is that I did not ever think that I would end up being an environmental activist, that I was, as a young person, I spent a ton of time out in the woods. I, I backpacked a lot and it was in Washington mostly and I was really distressed about logging up there. Tried to get involved, tried to do things to to change things. I was a member of the Mountaineers Association and realized that I would just get really depressed because lots of work went into stopping things and not much would happen and, and more logging would happen, more clear cuts would happen, more beautiful forests would be carted off to the mill. So for many years, I was much. I, I was an anti-war activist. I was a public health activist. I worked for AODP in Mendocino County, alcohol and other drug programs, and ran a needle exchange in the '90s and did HIV education and prevention. But a year and a half ago, I was riding my mountain bike a lot, and 
part of a group called the Mendocino Coast Cyclists, and we had a meeting where we looked at a map of Jackson State and a number of planned timber harvests, and they were all on the West End, which is basically where we live and where most of us go out and ride our bikes and walk and pick mushrooms and ride horses. And we started looking into how we could affect this and change this. And we started a group, Mendocino Trail Stewards, in March of 2020. And our first meeting was before lockdown, before shelter in place. And by the second meeting, we had changed tack and we had decided to do it online and we kind of battled around for a few months because it was really hard to get direction with all that was going on mm -hmm. in the world. But we thought that we could do something by submitting comments to something called the JAG group, the Jackson Advisory Group, which met in May of 2020. And we didn't really understand that it was along the lines of the U.S. Forest Service collaborative groups, which are timber industry stacked groups that don't really have much say. You can't really change what's going on in the forest by submitting comments, but 40 plus people sub submitted very elaborate comments to the JAG, which more or less disappeared. We don't know right. exactly where they are. We know that they didn't affect anything um, the Casper 500 plan, which seems to be the, the focal point of so much of what's going on in the forest resistance, has one official comment submitted on it. And we, when we realized that our, what we were trying to do was not working, we researched how to let people know how to, we educated ourselves, our group got more focus, and by midsummer, we had created a website that had education on what was happening in the forest and a newsletter mm -hmm. and it, you know about the good things and the bad things but also when a timber harvest plan was submitted and what needed to be sent to whom with what uh, particular thing in the subject line so that it would actually be recorded into the important documents to make it make some difference by December of 2020 had gotten, I'd say, about 100 comments submitted to Little North Fork of the Big River Timber Harvest Plan in Mitchell Creek, and we'd really gotten some some movement in the right direction. And it turns out that those comments, when I say a comment, it's not just like a couple words. The, the biggest set of comments was over 50 pages and written by a lawyer. And there's comments, you know, 20-page uh, submissions from California Native Plant Society and from the Audubon Society and from the Mendocino Woodlands. There's there's lots of commentary, mm -hmm. and we figured out what we didn't know. Would thank thank groups like Forest Forever, uh, Forest Unlimited from Epic and Humboldt, and we were instructed that when you give comments, you've got to try to look at the timber harvest plan carefully and see not just the things you don't like, but the things that are possibly errors in their process mm -hmm. and the things that were overlooked. And that's the things, those are the things that you can later on litigate if you need to. So we were actually able to at least delay and possibly stop the two timber harvest plans, the Little North Fork, Big River, and Mitchell Creek that were submitted after we 
we gathered steam mm-hmm. because they haven't been okayed. They haven't been approved. They're just, they're stuck in limbo. And what we assume is, is that Cal Fire knows that these plans will be litigated if they approve them. Right. This kind of brings up the other question because uh, people will ask me, they'll say, well, why can't we get a, an injunction to stop the Casper 500 plan? And my understanding is that the only way you could get a judge to consider an injunction is if you had filed the right type of comments on a plan in the usually one month period that you can make the comments. It all has to be done very specifically to, to cue you up to the possibility that you could bring a lawsuit mm-hmm. or, or talk to a judge about an injunction. Is that the case? Yes, the one month period is actually after the pr- approval, mm-hmm. that you have a month, af- 30 days after approval to file to any kind of litigation. But you can't litigate in this way unless you've submitted a comment that you feel they overlooked. So unless there's a comment on the record that says that so and such spot where, say, a spotted owl lives was not taken into account in the timber harvest plan or something was missed, that if that's not in the record and they haven't had a chance to remedy it, then you can't sue on that. There are a number of attorneys and a number of people who feel that we're being a little bit too careful, that there are ways you can litigate separate of that. The problem is is that it's expensive and the, it's kind of a long shot. Mm-hmm. There's, There are definitely law firms that will do these things pro bono, but they'll only do something pro bono if they feel there's a good chance of winning. Right. And I spoke a while back with Sharon Duggan, who was the legal counsel of Epic for a long time and right. one of the most renowned environmental attorneys in California for a long time. Mm-hmm. She is retired now, and she is very pessimistic about the legal environment in California, that, that the courts are pretty agency and industry friendly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can submit a great lawsuit, but if you end up in the wrong court, you'll just lose no matter what. Right. And if you're lucky, you might end up in the right court, but unless you've gone pro bono, you might end up spending $100,000, dollars $300,000. So we've made some decisions to not pursue certain avenues because we just didn't feel that it was worth the money. Right. Yeah, or the effort. Yeah. yeah, and then you end up with a, a bad precedent set as well. Mm-hmm. So as we went into this year, 2021, we had already had a few months of really strong support from Tom Wheeler and Matt Simmons from EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt. Through them, we had contacted SAGE, the Social Environmental Indigenous Justice Group in Willits, who had brought this to the attention of Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Tribal Elder Priscilla Hunter and their legal counsel, Polly Gervin, who got involved. And they started this thing called government-to-government consultations, which we'll hear about a little more soon. We expanded into a coalition, the Save Jackson Coalition, savejackson.org. And we have a separate website, but they're linked with our website and with Epic's website, This has been a pretty amazing development because of all these different efforts from direct action 
to music, to art, to meditation on the ground. I'm going to run through a list of a bunch of different people who have been so important in bringing us to this point today where we're here. And I'm going to obviously miss people because I've forgotten people and because there's people who have wanted to help and have not even been able to because we haven't been able to give them anything to do. But we've got Lynn and Mike and Art and Mike Berna and Star and Gene, Paul Schulman. We've got Vince Taylor go back to the 1990s all the way to today. Uh, Margie Chandler, Paul Hughes, Rick Coates, Naomi Wagner, Earth Ellen, Anne-Marie, Tom Wheeler, Matt Simmons, Matt Simmons, Matt Simmons, Priscilla Hunter, Polly Gervin, Michael Hunter, Garth Hagerman, John Klein, Sorrel, Ravel, Bill, Lemos, J.P., Evan Mills, Lizard, Kent, Quirk, Greasy Pete, Alder, Bugs, Michelle, Jason, don't forget Jason, Bodie, Alicia Bales, Gary Hughes, Andy Wellspring, Jory, Chris, all of our families, Chipmunk, George, Soljama, Daphne, Linda, Bill, Buckeye, Walker, Bruce, Rosalind, of course, Genevieve, River, Marie, Uli, Cal Winslow, George Reinhardt, Loreto Rojas, Teresa Shoulders, Renee Pasquimal, Rue, Mary Kay, Annie Lee, Nick Parrish, Sandy Brown, Chet, Karen, Tina, and Tina, Jenny Rorby, Michael B., Mama Monkey. I, I don't even know who else. Obviously, with all those people, there are others I've forgotten. There's just been a lot of people involved here, and we do butt heads sometimes, like my goats do out in the yard, but that just brings us to a point where we learn to love each other even more. We've had lots of publicity that has come from the Redwood Nation Earth Firsts press releases and different reporters coming up to visit us that it's we are known all over. And this has become one of the many focal points in the struggle for for forest and climate activism that's really going on all up and down the West Coast and all around the world where we're trying to change the paradigm of how humans and nature interact, where the world is not seen as part of man's dominion, a bunch of resources to be extracted, but instead a bunch of other entities inhabiting the planet in partnership with us and where we we work towards a sustainable and livable future. The way that indigenous societies have worked in partnership with natural systems for tens of thousands of years, instead of this modern wealth extraction model that has led us to the brink of disaster and is leading us over the cliff as we speak. I feel like we've covered a lot of bases We're going to go now to hear a report on the school climate strike that local youth forest climate activists Ravel Gautier and Sarah Constance Rose pulled off in Mendocino. This is listener-supported community radio, KZUIXFM 90.7, 91.5, 88.1. I'm speaking with Ravel Gautier. They and their friend Sarah Constance Rose organized a school climate strike on October 1st. Ravel, how did it go? I think it went great. We got a ton of kids from the Mendocino High School, which is where my partner, the person I planned it with, Sarah Rose, goes. Um, We got a few people from my school, and a lot of adults showed up. I think we got some good media attention. We got a large email list. Uh, So hopefully that can just be the first in a series of events like this. 
And I'm going to play a little clip of Ravel speaking before the school climate strike in response to a question I asked about deforestation and what they would say to Governor Gavin Newsom. Deforestation is one of the most prominent causes of climate change, and uh, we can't afford to lose uh, that vital carbon sink. So I tell Gavin Newsom, take action about JDSF and read the letters sent to you by people, especially kids in Mendocino County. How would you see it's different for you as youth being activists than, say, for the other people you work with who are older? Yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting question. Being a youth activist has a certain power to it, but being an adult activist doesn't because you're really saying, like, I know that I'm not an adult yet, but, like, I care and <laughs> it's it's my future that I'm fighting for. But I also sort of feel like, I mean... We're, we're all, if you're an activist, you're an activist, and it means that you're willing to fight for what you believe in, and we aren't really that different. Um, I mean, age, but like, we're fighting for the same thing, and we're fighting, you know, just as hard, so. But I've gotten way more involved in this campaign to save Jackson Demonstration State Forest, which is really like the first place where I was able to actually become a real activist. I mean, I've gone to like protests and demonstrations throughout my life, but like this was a real turning point. And I would think, I think I do consider myself to be a climate activist. Good afternoon again, and welcome to the second grade science report. This is Chad Swimmer, and I am here with... Chipmunk. Hi, Chipmunk. How are you doing today? Good. Well, we are going to talk today about a certain kind of bird that's one of my favorite kinds of birds. What kind of bird are we talking about? Ravens. Ravens. Can you describe a raven for me? Well, they're black, and they're smart. To some people, they're annoying. Yeah, why are they annoying? Because they, like get into stuff and they're loud except i don't think they're annoying yeah i kind of really like them do you think ravens like living in the redwoods like we do kind of hmm what do you think is special about ravens hmm i don't know i've got a lot of really good questions about ravens that i'd like to ask a raven specialist uh, ravens are part of a family called corvids so maybe we'll call a corvidologist a friend of mine named Jenny Rorby, who lives pretty close to us, right on the other side of Mitchell Creek. What do you think? Should we call Jenny? Yep. Sounds good. Well, let's give it a try. Hello? Hey, Jenny. This is Chad. Hey. I'm here with my friend Chipmunk, and he has a question for you about ravens. How smart are ravens? They are very smart, very, very smart. The smartest corvids, all corvids, are the smartest of birds. That's jays and ravens and crows, but ravens are really, really smart. Are magpies corvids? Yes. Yeah, we have a dog named Magpie. Is she a corvid? Oh. Uh, no, I don't think. She doesn't have feathers, does she? Uh, I don't know. I don't think she has feathers. Okay, well, she's probably not a corvid. Yeah. So how long do ravens live? Well, you know, the thing with that is uh, the, there's only one record of a raven living 22.7 years. 
and that one was banned when it, it from the in the nest in Nova Scotia, and it was found after it died in Nova Scotia, and so that's how no, they know how long it lives. But there's not really any way to tell in the wild unless that happens, unless you ban the bird when it's a baby, and then you find it when it dies. Wow. And so, but in captivity, they can live longer than that. Interesting. Do they live all over the world? The family is all over the world. We don't actually have ravens on the East Coast much. Um, down the East Coast, in the North you do, but there's a whole section of the center part of the United States and Florida and that area that there, there aren't any ravens. And oddly, oddly, here on the coast we have ravens, but we don't have crows. Yeah, I've wondered about that for a long time. wonder if there was some strange event that happened to ravens and they don't want to come back. I don't know. I don't know. How high can ravens jump? Well, if they don't use the, not very high if they don't use their wings. If they use their wings, they can jump really high. Yeah. (laughs) I heard that ravens can get, they kind of get married and stay with their raven partner for a long time. Can you comment on this? Yes, I believe they do. I think they are monogamous. And um, they are also pretty territorial. I have two that come to my house that that stand outside and yell for me to bring them something to eat, which I don't very often. If there's some old kind of cat food, I'll take it out to them. But other than that, I'm not going to feed them because you don't really want to encourage more of them. But when they're young, they form groups. And those groups kind of overwhelm a pair that's defending a territory. Yeah. So if they find something, a roadkill or something, and a whole bunch of young ones will come in, and just sheer numbers, they protect that food source from a pair in the territory. Chipmunk, do you remember when you and me rescued a raven? Yeah. What happened? Well, it had damage on its wings. It did, and what did we do with it? We gave it to the vet. We did, but for a while we were thinking we were going to try to keep it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like a nice raven. Did we give it a name? I don't remember. I don't either, but it sure was fun to hang out with. Wait, I just remembered. We called it Ravy. Ravy, yeah, that's true. But then we found out that you can't keep any kind of wild animal that you've rescued, so we took it down to a rescue center. But I heard that you were able to rescue a raven and keep it as a pet. I think it's because you had some special license to do this. Can you talk about it? I did have one. Um, somebody called me. It was when I was president of Audubon, and they said they had found a raven that had fallen out of a nest. And I actually think what happened is the parents realized there was something wrong with it and pitched it out of the nest. And I had him for about five years. And he was blind, and so it made it. You know, you had to had to you had to help him find his food. But he, he lasted about five years in captivity, unfortunately. So, um, but he was he was uh, he was interesting. He was interesting. I discovered he was blind when he flew into a tree the first time he tried to fly. Oh wow! <laughs> so, well, what would you say, just from your perspective, is the most special thing about ravens? Oh, how intelligent they are. I mean, they recognize you. They, they can recognize um, a person's face and remember a person's face. So could jays, for that matter. Most of the corvids can. But, I mean, you know, if you're in, if you're in a – the tests were done where a guy wore a mask. He used to, he'd feed the ravens with his real face, and then he'd wear a mask out. 
and then the ravens could tell the difference. They could tell the difference. They recognized him, and I know mine recognized me. Because I actually can call to them. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And Sure. My we'll pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I would like to talk a little bit on the side about what happens if you do find an injured bird that you're really not equipped or trained to deal with it. It's it's quite a task to rehabilitate a bird. So check out the birdrescuecenter.org. They're in Santa Rosa, and they will help you out. That's where we took Ravy. And if you'd like to see some pictures of Chipmunk and Ravy and I, they will be at the Mendocino underscore trail underscore stewards Instagram account. And since we're talking about a particular creature that has kind of as important a place on this planet as we do, for better or worse, and that we and ravens have such a long history of coexistence and conflict and cooperation, I would like to read an old story from the Haida people, the First Nations people that lived from the southeast tip of Alaska down through what's called Queen Charlotte Islands now. It's Haida Gwaii. In the beginning, there was no light in the world because an old magician kept it hidden in a box inside his house. Raven, who was always hungry, didn't like the darkness because it was difficult to find food. One day, he was looking for food near the old magician's house. He heard a voice saying, I have a box, and inside this box is another box, and inside this there is another box, and inside the smallest box is all the light in the world. Raven decided to steal the light. Raven waited until the old man's daughter went down to the river to collect water. Just as she was dipping her basket into the river, he changed himself into a hemlock needle. The needle floated into her basket. When the girl drank some water, she swallowed Raven too. Inside the girl's belly, Raven took the form of a human baby. He grew and grew, and in time, she gave birth to a funny-looking child with black eyes and a big nose. The old man loved his grandson so much that he gave in to the child's every wish. Raven became spoilt and greedy. He was bored with all of his toys and wanted to play with the box that held the light. Finally, the grandfather opened the box and tossed the glowing ball of light to Raven. As soon as Raven caught the light, he immediately changed into his bird form, holding the light in his beak. He flew up the chimney hole into the dark world. The magician was angry. He wanted to get the light back into his box. He flew after Raven. The light was heavy in Raven's beak, and he was getting tired. The magician was coming closer. Raven broke off some pieces of the light and threw them into the sky. They became the stars. The magician was still coming closer, so Raven broke off another piece of the light and threw it into the sky. It became the moon. Finally, Raven became so tired that he tossed the last and biggest piece of the light into the sky. It became the sun, and that is how daylight came into the world. This story was adapted for the modern world by Mary Mahoney from a traditional Haida legend. This has been the Second Grade Science Report. Thank you all, and we'll see you again next month. So I have three forest activists in my virtual Zoom studio for an update on what's happening on the ground in Jackson. 
we are here with Michelle Alder and Mugwort. Michelle. Yeah, thanks for having us, Chad. It's been a busy few weeks. There's rain in the forecast, but the forest defense is not forecast to be slowing down. No, all of these operations have, um, all of these timber harvest plants have winter operations written in, which means they can fall trees in the winter. If the ground is soaked, they can't use heavy machinery, but we still have to be doing our best to protect these trees. Alder. Yeah, hi guys. <clears throat> yeah, so it's actually been a really exciting time. Tuesday the 12th, there was a blockade in Soda Gulch. And at that blockade, there were uh, the Lear Asset Management team was there. And they're there saying that they're safety managers, uh, although we've seen them in the cut area before and they, they don't wear any PPE. They're not wearing any hard hats or reflective gear or anything like that. And they seem happy to condone uh, the workers continuing to work can I talk about this the safety officer quote unquote that uh, he is the founder and owner of Lear Assets Management L-E-A-R and these guys are worth looking at online because their website furthers the myth of forest activists as being eco-terrorists it's got a picture of a person hanging from a bulldozer monkey wrenching which is not something that people do anymore that we are out there really, we're trained in nonviolence, we are being peaceful on the ground, and we are trying to assert our rights to a future. Meanwhile, this guy was out at the tree sit in Rainbow Ridge in Humboldt County a few years ago, and there's pictures of him with friends leaning up against a car in full uh, combat gear with semi-automatic rifles. And there's a picture of this man, whose name I won't give, but we've all heard it, down a few weeks before in Enchanted Meadow in Albion, um, not concealed, but actually openly packing a pistol. So this is very much intimidation tactics, not safety tactics for sure. Yeah. On Thursday, the 14th, there was a tree sit that went up in the Casper 500. And that went up because we got word uh, that they may start cutting in that THP. And so the tree set actually went up in the Gemini tree, not the same area that we were in last time. And the Gemini tree is a really large, approximately 200-year-old redwood tree that's in, in the middle of a proposed logging road. The logging road, is, it's really odd the way it's set up. Instead of staying on flat ground at the top where the logging road terminates, they chose to come up from the bottom at road 600 through steep terrain in areas that are prone to erosion. And then through the middle of large trees, even though they have the option to go around them, and then over a wet area multiple times, and then terminating at the top on flat ground uh, where there's already access and disturbed areas there. It's really hard to imagine a worse road, to be honest. Yeah, it, it seems pretty blatantly like it's being built there as an excuse to take the large trees that it goes through. And there's multiple large trees that it goes through. It's not just one. Yeah, I would like to note that right now at um, wholesale market value, the Gemini tree is probably worth, and I hate to be crass, $50,000, and trees nearby are nearly as much. So yeah. it's a very worthwhile logging road or a very lucrative logging road. Alder, you were on the ground when a few of the chainsaw operators were pretty aggressive and aggro, and one of them said, well, I can kill the trees without falling them. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, so we had gone in, uh, and this was the first contact with this cut team uh, the first day that we were out there and caught them in the act. 
the first guy was uh, very aggressive and very reluctant to stop, but he did stop. He was not very happy about it, uh, a lot of yelling. And then I'd gone downhill to the next guy. And the way we approach these guys, because we're aware that it is quite dangerous for, for everyone involved, and so we try to mitigate that danger as much as we can. We stay back at a distance that the tree doesn't have a chance of, of hitting us when it falls. And then we wait for the tree to fall. And then we slowly make our approach after the tree is on the ground. While making a lot of noise. While making so a lot no of guesswork. Noise. Whistles and blow horns and, and sirens and stuff like that. We're all wearing reflective gear. We got hard hats on. So go down the hill and I get this guy's attention. He clearly sees me. He shuts his saw off. But then he looks at me and says, don't worry, I can continue to kill them without falling them. And so then with, with me present, following him around, he continues walking around the forest, uh, going up to the blue marked trees and cutting his first cut, his notch cut. So he cuts a notch in whichever direction he wants it to fall. So that's not enough to fall it. Of course, if there's heavy wind, then that could make it fall but it does effectively kill it once you have a giant notch cut out of the trunk of the tree. And um, yeah, he did that to about 10 different trees. And I would like to refer you all to Mama Tree Mendo's Instagram account. That's uh, mama.tree.mendo, where you can see some pictures of these wedge cut trees. Uh, there was an incident with Coyote Valley Pomo tribal chairman, Michael Hunter, had been the preceding week at a meeting of tribal chairman with Wade Crowfoot, the director of natural resources in California, who said there was no logging going on in Jackson at the time. And Michael Hunter came out to join the direct activists and to document what was going on. Mugwort, I understand you were there at the time. Can you describe what happened? Yeah, I can speak to that. I was recording um, so I didn't get to focus in on his encounter the uh, whole time, but um, essentially um, they came down um, from their trucks up above and the security officer was pointing his phone at us and then individually um, told each of us that we were trespassing um, in an active timber logging zone and that we need to leave and asked if we were willing to be arrested, and then proceeded to follow the loggers to this little um, ring of redwood trees that was named the um, fairy ring, and wound up their chainsaws, and it was seemed pretty antagonizing. I didn't think that they were going to follow any trees with, with um, activists in the like a 100-foot vicinity of the trees they wanted <laughs> They began to, like I said, rev their chainsaws up and it looked like they were going to fall this tree that they'd already cut a wedge out of. And I just felt in my heart that I needed to step where the tree was gonna fall. So I proceeded to move in front of one of the older loggers. And as I did so, they one of the, one of the loggers turned their back to me as I was recording. I guess maybe didn't want to get his face in, but the one with the chainsaw just uh, acted like he was going to cut it still and like he could fall like in a slightly off kilter direction. 
yeah, he ended up not and pointing at the cut and pointing at his heart hat and seemed frustrated, really, um, kind of shook his head. And then he, uh, he pretty much just pointed at the security officer. And then um, as I am turning my camera um, towards the security officer, he's just right in my face with his phone and my mask had fallen down a little bit and he was like oh i got a good visual and then i was just so irate and in the moment and heated up that i had kind of lost control a little bit my first time doing this type of direct action but they were told by security officer to pack up and then they went back up to their to their cars but then they came back down a couple hours later and didn't really do it the same way with the chainsaw and all that. But they told us, the security officer told us we were in an active cutting zone and we needed to leave and recorded this uh, again and left back up to the actual timber, one of the actual timber harvest plans. That ferry ring wasn't actually even part of the timber harvest plan, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I can see that it was probably a, a pretty difficult event to be a part of. What a number of people have told me that they tried to watch Michael Hunter's video and nearly half the people who have talked to me said they had to turn it off because it was so disturbing. And the the level of the intensity of the confrontation when you can see the moment where the logger is standing there pointing at Michael and waving with his chainsaw and then shakes his head like you say, it's it's very... I don't know how to put it, but thank you for describing that. And thank you for being there. You're welcome. One of the reasons why we're contesting this, aside from the fact that we want a moratorium for all of Jackson, is the practice of hack and squirt. If you could describe having gone around in this timber harvest plan and also in Chamberlain, and uh, you have both, I think, been in large areas of hack and squirt. Can you talk about this? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the hack and squirt is a particularly sad, uh, thing that they're doing out there in Chamberlain Creek, the hack and squirt is already complete. So what they do is they go around and they cut hatch marks into the side of the trunk, uh, multiple of them. I think it's two inch spacing that they're shooting for. And then they have a backpack sprayer full of chemicals on uh, what they're using is a Mazapir, uh, which is banned in parts of Europe, uh, because of its toxicity to aquatic life and it, it just doesn't break down. So once it's there, it's in the ecosystem. Um, so they spray this into the hatch marks and then the tree dies relatively quickly within a few months. And, uh, and then they just leave it standing until it falls over. I'm not sure how many acres they're doing in, in Chamberlain, or they've done in Chamberlain Creek. It's quite a bit, it's large swaths of land. They're aiming for hardwoods. Um, they're trying to make way for uh, more commercial species since the hardwood isn't really good for much. In Soda Gulch, they're doing 113 acres. And like I said, they haven't done it yet. We're not sure when they're going to do it. We really want to see that stop. Oaks in the redwood forests are really important to the indigenous people. They've used them for a food supply for thousands and thousands of years. And a lot of the oak stands are actually intentionally planted by the Pomo. They're or not just the Poma, but all the, the natives have been intentionally planted and managed as, as a bit of an orchard and as a food crop. 
and I'm not sure if that's what's happening in Soda Gulch and Chamberlain Creek or what has happened, but very devastating to see that gone just to make room for more commercial species. Yeah, I'd like to point out that that this amazapir, it is a problem in watersheds and that both Chamberlain Confluence and Soda Gulch are in the upper Big River watershed which is a pretty impacted watershed, and it also is home to endangered coho and other salmonids. The other thing I'd like to elaborate on is just that tan oaks are probably the species that hosts more different mycorrhizae, more different fungal species than any other tree in the forest. And uh, for people who are looking at the forest from an economic standpoint, they, they consider it just a junk tree, which is really kind of like tree racism. But in the case of forest resilience, having these trees and everything that they host is what keeps the forest moist and healthy. Michelle. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. That so often gets overlooked and it's so devastating. Additionally, um, hack and squirt and the leaving of trees standing is against our county law. It's not, you're not allowed to do it. And Cal Fire thinks that they're the exemption to this rule. When the public have said really clearly, look, it's a fire hazard. You can't kill trees and leave them standing. So there's really this double standard going on out there that's putting us all at risk. Thanks, Michelle. It was really astounding at the August 3rd JAG meeting, the Jackson Advisory Group meeting, to hear them actually say that they didn't feel that they needed to follow county laws, that they were a state agency and they were larger than that. And that's really not democracy. And this question is for Mugwort. We are on KZYX and we're in a pledge drive and you and I met the first time at the station and you were answering phones and I was pitching. And you told me recently that that was about the first time you'd heard of what was going on in Jackson, that through KZYX, you have become involved. Can you talk about that? Thankfully, this lady named Naomi, um, who called in on the discussion Monday nights, was making a, a plea for more help from from those out there who who find it find that they want to get involved. And something in my heart told me that that this is important and and that this is something I want to do. With with that, I. Sure enough, wrote down the number she gave, and I got in touch with uh, Michelle. So we are just about out of time, but uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yes, I would like to add that being in this movement and meeting all these new people, um, people who have been activists for many, many years doing activism otherwhere, I am truly and forever grateful for what I've learned for them, the knowledge that they've shared, the nonviolence training nonviolence training code, I feel that I'm able to apply that not only just to the activism in in the forest, but um, in my life as well. And that doing that has led to a healthier life, um, not just for me, but those around me, including my family. And that to me is um, very special. And I, and, I, and I have a very special spot in my heart for, for this whole movement. And, and um, I'm looking forward to the future and, and what will happen. Thank you, Chad, for everything you do and, and done. You too, Mugwort. Take care. <laughs> you are listening still to KZOAX 90.7 
And I would like to thank everybody who did donate during the pledge drive and everybody who helped out. And we are still a little short of the goal, unfortunately, at $75,760 a few hours ago. So probably more than that. This money is really important and it is well spent. KZOAX, as many of you know, is planning a move over to Ukiah from Philo, which is going to be hard on some of us, but there will still be satellite studios all over the county. And, and you know, Mendocino County is a large county with a small population and a lot of curvy roads. So it's been really expensive to keep this going. But if you go around the country, you don't find many public radio stations that are so community-based as KZOAX. So I encourage you, please... Go to kzyx.org and click the red Donate Now button. So before we wrap it up, I'd like to mention that we are doing a podcast that is called Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices from the Forest Resistance. Uh, This podcast is available on our website, mendocinotrailstewards.org, media links. And it's also going to be played on KZYX, soon to find a time slot. The most recent episode was a conversation with Pat and Applesauce, two tree sitters up in Humboldt County who have been in the canopy for over a year on Green Diamond territory. And we talk about all kinds of things, especially creating a safe space for queer people in the trees. There is also another episode of the Second Grade Science Report. Next week on the podcast, we are following up on what a number of people have requested about what are we going to build with in the future. If we are against the cutting of more trees and using lumber, we're going to talk to Chad Hansen, the wildfire ecologist, who's also an expert on the carbon footprint of building materials. And then we will hear from a number of people involved with forest reciprocity, a movement that is designing different kinds of building materials using smaller poles, poles used as a structure for straw bale and cob houses, which are much more energy efficient and they don't burn. Because we all know that wildfire is a problem. And why would you want to build a house out of wood in wildfire country? Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to go out with a different version of a song that was requested by Sarah Constance Rose. In the spirit of Corvids, this is Counting Crows. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Oh,